This morning our sermon is coming from the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Listen to these words together. He that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we've heard from God. Let's come now in a time of prayer. Lord, as we hear these words about our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray that you would do your work through these words in our life. This is your word, and you speak to us through your Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would love and serve Jesus Christ more and more. And we thank you that that is your goal for us as well, that you are making us more and more like your Son. We pray that you would do this again this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. If I asked you to introduce Jesus to someone, what would you say? What kinds of things would come to your mind as you were trying to explain who Jesus Christ really is? There's lots of details we could say about him. He is certainly our Savior. He's the Son of God. He is powerful. He is the Word. The list could go on and on and on. But when I find myself thinking about Jesus Christ, the words of this passage in Colossians don't usually come to mind. I would say that we cheapen our Savior, Jesus Christ, by not meditating on and loving Him as He is revealed here in Colossians. Really, our passage today is really just one long description of Jesus Christ. All those he's and him's in this passage are pointing back to verse 13, where Paul has written that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So our passage today is looking back on that Son and explaining so much more about who he actually is. As you listen to all these descriptions, all these explanations of who Jesus is, this passage is really jam-packed with details. But it's important to see these are not random details. No, Paul is showing the Colossians truly how important Jesus actually is for everything in the entire world. What we see here is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the center of God's plan for everything. Really, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, again, is the center of God's plan for everything. 
This truth is really amazing. It, it, it affects every single thing in our lives, everything in the world around us, everything from eternity past turn to eternity future. Everything is connected and depends on Jesus Christ. But this passage, with this amazing truth, also comes with maybe a warning sign. You've probably seen those, those caution signs, right? That yellow and black caution sign. Well, there's one in this passage too, because if you had to look at this passage with one of those signs, that sign would say, caution, the contents of this passage confront you. The contents confront you. Why? Because what God says here about Jesus Christ confronts us about some of the basic things that we believe. Our view about creation, our view of the church, our view of the cross, and most especially, our view of Christ. As we will look at this passage, God is calling us to look more deeply at who Christ is, and really what he has done. Now, we'll see two basic points here. See, first, that Jesus Christ is the center of creation. We see that in verses 15 to 17. And then second, we see that Jesus Christ is the center of the new creation in verses 18 through 20. Now, as I said before, Paul has just finished telling us about the Son of God, the Son of God in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But in verses 15 to 17, Paul kind of zooms out to explain the significance of Jesus Christ, this Son, and he looks at Jesus' relationship to everything that has been made. Paul begins here actually in verse 15 looking at Jesus' identity. He says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And that those two phrases there, Paul is describing first Jesus' relation to his Father, and then second, his relation to the creation. So first, Jesus' relation to God. Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. We all know what an image is. If you think of a a picture, for instance, the picture is showing us what that real thing is like. It shows us what something else is like. And that is what Jesus, the Son of God, does. But on so much deeper level than a photograph or even a mirror, Jesus, as the Son of God, He is and always has been the the image of the invisible God His Father. Think about before creation, this is what the Son was doing in the Trinity. He was imaging the Father. He was reflecting who His Father is. That's actually a deep part of what it means to be Father and Son in the Godhead. The Son images or shows the Father. And because the Son has been doing this in eternity past, because He's doing that, then it's actually fitting that he shows us who the Father is. When he actually comes in his incarnation, what he does is shows us the Father. We read from Hebrews 1.3 earlier, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. John makes a similar point 
in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God, and he's talking about the Son, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one else, no one else is like Jesus, the Son of God. No one else has that kind of deep relationship with the Father. But Jesus, the Son of God, is also unique because of His relationship to the world. Paul writes that the Son is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we need to look carefully at the context to understand what Paul means. Jesus, as the firstborn, does not mean that he is part of creation. Uh, this, this is maybe where we get into trouble when we think of firstborn, because we jump to what we've seen in our kinds of situations. We've seen maybe the firstborn child of a family. So look at our own children. There's the firstborn. He is the one who is born first. And he is part of the family. Some people have kind of taken that idea and they've, they've misunderstood or even twisted this passage to make Jesus just another part creation. You can think of the Arians in the 300s, way, way, way back when. But in today's world, we have the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who do not see Jesus as God. But the Son of God is not a creature, not even the best creature. He is not a creature. Again, John 1. We could also look at Philippians 2. Jesus Christ is shown to be God from all eternity. So as we think about Jesus as the firstborn, he is not part of creation. Actually, as we think about what firstborn means, we need to see that it's actually a word about status. The firstborn has a special status or position. For instance, maybe in other times, the firstborn would get more of the inheritance when his father dies, or he may have more authority within the family. There's places we can look in Scripture for this same idea. Psalm 89, verse 27 actually captures this idea of status. It says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So in Colossians 1, as Paul talks about Jesus as the firstborn, he's referring to Jesus' status or position or authority. Jesus as the firstborn of creation has authority over all creation. Well, how do we see Jesus' authority over creation? Well, Paul immediately goes there in verse 16. In verse 16, he makes the point that everything was created by the Son, through the Son, and for the Son. Those three phrases show the Son's authority and supremacy. Everything was made by Him or in Him. That shows the Son's actions in creation. Think about it. This is where the Bible starts, right? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that every act of God is actually the act of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we need to read Genesis 1 as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit acting together. But how was the Son involved in creation? Well, if you think about John 1 again, John describes Jesus as the Word. He is the very Word of God. It's another way of getting at the image idea. He is the Word of God. How does God create 
in Genesis 1. God speaks. God speaks and everything comes into being. That word that he speaks is actually the sun. That's how we see the sun in the very creation of the world. Now Paul really drives home the point that everything, all things, physical and spiritual, visible and invisible, were created by the sun. And Paul has a special focus here, actually. It looks like he has a special focus on the angels when he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There's other places we can look to see some of those same words. Ephesians, Ephesians actually has two places, in Ephesians 3, chapter 10, and in Ephesians 1, 21, where these words are used and they are pointing toward angels, fallen or unfallen. And actually in Colossians 2, just the next chapter, um, Jesus' death on the cross is actually seen as a victory over these spiritual powers. Why, why is Paul talking about the angels here? We, we don't normally think about, at least I don't, these angels, these spiritual powers in our world. And maybe that's something that we need to think about more. But Paul's a specific point here. Because he is showing, he is showing really the supremacy of Christ. Because even the most powerful created thing, even Satan himself, a fallen angel, is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. And even more than that, if we look further in the letter, it looks like the Colossians have stumbled at this exact point where someone has been telling them that what they need is not Jesus Christ, but they actually need angels. They need to be worshiping. So Paul is showing that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is what you need. Now, Paul goes on to say that all things were created through the Son, and they are created for the Son. Creation, in other words, is not just through Jesus Christ, but the purpose of creation, the goal of creation, is also Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that, that is a challenging point, I think, for our day. Because many people would look at the world around us and say, what's, what's the point? Where is all of this going? What is the meaning of my life, of the existence of everything? And Jesus says, the point, the meaning, the purpose is me. That the goal of creation then is Christ. It's for the creation to worship Christ. Now, I always love so many of those Psalms in the Old Testament that call on creation to worship Christ, to worship God. We saying Psalm 148 earlier, and it does that same thing. Creation is meant to be praising the Son. But the purpose of creation being the Son also means that He is the one who rules creation. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually says that's exactly what Jesus is doing now. Jesus is reigning and ruling over everything, and He is subduing His enemies until everything will be under him, and he will hand it over to the Father. And the purpose of creation being Christ means that everything, everything is for the glory of the Son. If I can just make this practical. You and I are part of creation, 
And that means that our purpose, our purpose in life, our purpose for existing is already set. It's not up to you or me or anyone else out there to decide why we're here and what we're doing. No, our purpose is to worship, serve, and glorify the Son of God. Now, we know that sin messes that up, right? Because in our sin, we don't do those things. We're trying to throw off the authority of our Creator. We're trying to make ourselves or something else the purpose of our existence. Maybe the creation is for us, for some other reason, but that's rebellion. That is basic rebellion. We can do that in so many different ways. We can certainly you know, abuse the, the physical creation, the things that God has given us. That's one way we do this. But our rebellion is seen in so many other kind of deeper ways as well. You can see it, for instance, when we as a society or or we as individuals create our, our own morals. You know, what, what we're going to say in this generation is right or wrong, or what your truth is, or what my truth is. Those things, when we're pushing those things, instead of looking at God's law, when we do those things, we are making creation about us. Creation is for me to shape. It is for me to rule. It is for me to give meaning to. But our purpose... And this is a good thing. Our purpose is set. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Christ, not you or I, is the purpose of all creation. Now in verse 17, Paul goes on to say more about Jesus Christ and His relationship to creation. He says, He is before all things. Paul Paul here is underlining the fact that the Son existed before anything else was made. We can't imagine what that's like. We don't know, we, don't, we, we have never been able to experience a time before all of this was made or existed. And yet that's part of the point. We can't imagine what that's like. But Jesus, the Son of God, is telling us that that is the truth. He is unique. He is unique because He is the eternal God. But Jesus is also directly involved in the world today to sustain everything that he has made. Paul writes that right now, in him, all things hold together. The created world continues because of Christ. It's not a a set of impersonal laws that holds creation together. I I had a good friend in college, very smart um, science guy, and what he, w- he knew so much about the laws of nature. He knew so much about gravity and of all these things that are happening in the atoms. And yet he did not know that behind those and in those stands Jesus Christ himself. See, gravity or Newton's law, first law of motion or anything else you can list does not hold creation together. No. We have a personal creator and a personal sustainer. It's true that the Son has chosen to act through laws, that He's given us laws so that things don't fall apart, but it's actually His continuous work that holds creation together. Again, going back to Hebrews 1.3, what is He doing right now? The Son is upholding the universe by the word of His power. So already in these opening verses, Paul has shown us just how important Jesus Christ, the Son of God, truly is. He creates and he rules all of creation according to God the Father's plan. But Jesus Christ 
is even more important than this, so much more important than this, because, and we'll see this as our second point, Christ is the center of new creation as well. See that in verses 18 through 20. What what Paul is doing as he enters into these second verses is he's setting up a parallel between what Christ does in creation and then what he does in new creation. But as you look at verses 18 to 20, you might wonder how new creation, that kind of idea, fits what's being described. Isn't, isn't this just describing salvation? Now, verse 18 talks about Jesus' resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. Or verse 20 talks about the reconciliation that comes through Jesus' death. But it's important to see that one of the ways that the Bible actually describes Jesus' work is as a new creation. Something new is happening as Jesus Christ comes into the world to save his people. Where do we see this idea of new creation in Scripture? Well, we have God's promise, God's promise looking forward of a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus returns. And we also see that Jesus Christ in his resurrection is the beginning of a new kind of people. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. When he returns, we will be raised and we will be made like him. There's going to be a change in us to be like Jesus Christ. But the Bible is also clear that we don't have to wait to be part of Jesus' new creation. It's not just something future. We are united to him now We're actually joined into his body. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The original of this verse is even stronger. It's not just that he is a new creation. He is new creation. In our salvation, we are made new and we are joined to a whole new reality in Jesus Christ. We right now are spiritually sharing in the new creation that Jesus Christ brings. And here in Colossians 1, Paul shows Jesus to be the center of this new creation. First, Paul says that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. The church is where we see Jesus' new creation now because the church is made up of all believers and their children. Another way of saying it is that the church is redeemed and remade humanity. Paul says that that Christ is the head of this new body. Jesus is the head and the the church is his body. That's a very, very close relationship, even closer than the relationship Christ has with the entire world. Just think about your own head and body. You need your head to be alive. You need your head to guide you. You need all those things. And that relationship between a head and body described here is is a relationship of authority. That's the first thing, is that Jesus is the head. That means he's the ruler. He's the king of his church. But it's also a relationship of dependence. We as the church need Christ. We need Christ. He gives us life and he keeps us going. Now, Paul also says that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. With that kind of language, Paul is focused on Jesus' resurrection. He is the beginning of something new because he is the firstborn from the dead. 
As we saw in verse 15, firstborn has that idea of position or authority. And Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead, but it's more than just that he is the first one. He now has the authority and the power to bring people through death and into the life that he now has. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, this is what Paul says. Thus it is written, the first Adam, it's the actual Adam, became a living being, but that last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Jesus, in his resurrection, became a life-giving spirit who brings us out of our death and our sin and gives us new life and salvation. And here's Paul's conclusion to all these things. He says that in everything he might be preeminent. See, the, the purpose of Jesus being the head of the church and the firstborn from the dead is that Jesus may be preeminent in absolutely everything. That means he's the most important. He's the most important in everything. He's the most important in creation. He's the most important in new creation. Nothing has been made or sustained or saved or remade without him being directly involved. You and I cannot wrap our minds really around what Paul is saying here. It's beyond what we understand. And that's good because Jesus Christ and the riches of Jesus Christ are absolutely inexhaustible. But Paul actually does help us further to understand the significance of Jesus as the most important of everything that has been made. Paul goes on now to show why Jesus is special, why he is actually the most important in God's plan for everything. Paul says there are two related reasons. Verses 19 to 20, listen carefully. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. Did you hear the two reasons? Jesus is preeminent because, first, he has the fullness of God, and second, because he reconciles all things. In other words, who Jesus is and what he does are unique and vitally important. And you might notice a, a difference in your translation at verse 19. The ESV says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Other translations might say something like, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Or, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. The, the basic point of the original sentence is that there is a unique fullness dwelling in Jesus Christ. Part of the reason we have these differences in translations is fullness of what? What what is actually going on here? And if we turn over to Colossians 2, verse 9, we see almost the same statement, but made much more clear. For in him, that's in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, Jesus Christ is fully God. That seems to be the same point that Paul is making here in Colossians 1.19. Jesus is utterly unique because he is fully God. And we know that Jesus has always been fully God because he is the Son of God. But Paul is focusing on Jesus' incarnation, 
when the Son actually takes to Himself a human nature, He is born here and He lives a life here, right then, Jesus, the Son of God, is 100% God and 100% man. I know that kind of math doesn't seem to add up, but that's the mystery and the beauty of the Incarnation, really. What Paul is describing here is what the Bible teaches about the unique identity of Jesus Christ as fully God. So who Jesus is as the Son of God who took on our human nature is utterly unique. But then look at verse 20. Because what Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, does is also completely unique. Jesus reconciled all things to himself through himself. Let's go step by step here. Jesus reconciled. If you need to reconcile something, that means something is wrong. Something is broken. A relationship has been destroyed and peace is needed. And the Bible says the problem is sin. When Adam sinned in the garden by disobeying God and eating the forbidden fruit, sin entered the world and corrupted everything. Sin did not just affect us, but sin actually affected everything that God made. Sin broke the world's relationship with God. God is still directly involved, yes, but he is working with a creation that at some level is opposed to him. And Jesus reconciled the creation to God. Jesus came to fix that problem of sin. And usually when the Bible speaks of Jesus' reconciliation, it means Jesus reconciling us as men to God because we are sinners. But here in Colossians, Paul says that Jesus reconciles all things. There's a bigger focus. All things, whether on earth or in heaven. Jesus comes to reconcile everything that he has made. He comes to reconcile that to himself. But how does he do it? How does Jesus bring peace between God and all of creation? Well, he does it, Paul says, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is saying that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for sin has a creation-wide impact. That, that might sound surprising, again, because God shows us time and time again that Jesus' death is focused on redeeming his people. It's redeeming us. But Jesus' death also has a wider impact. It brings peace. How does Jesus' death bring peace? And what, what does that peace even look like? Well, when Jesus died, he did die for his people. That's part of actually reconciling all things to himself, is reconciling us to him. He died to pay for our sins, to give us his righteousness, and to bring us into fellowship with God again. So this is one way, actually, that Jesus brings peace, by graciously turning enemies into children of God. But Jesus' death and his resurrection are also a victory over others, actually over his enemies. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he defeated sin and death and Satan. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
And we see in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns, he is going to put an end to Satan and death in judgment. So actually, that's another way that Jesus brings peace by defeating and judging enemies. Those two ways of making peace, either by salvation or by judgment, are actually what Paul has in mind in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul is talking about the whole creation worshiping Jesus as the Lord. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For many of us, hopefully for all of us here, we will bow to Jesus and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord willingly and joyfully because he has saved us. But God does not promise to save everyone. And even those people who have tried to resist him through their whole lives will have to, at that day, recognize Jesus as Lord, and they will be judged and sent to hell forever. But the the point is this, that Jesus will bring peace. He will reconcile all of creation to himself, either by salvation or by judgment. And nothing and no one will be able to resist him. Paul really says so much in these, in these brief verses, but what is the point? Paul means for this truth to be useful. These are not just facts for your head. These truths here are food for your needy souls. Let me just make a few points of application to show you this. <clears throat> the truth that Jesus Christ is the center of creation, the new creation, it causes us to praise him. Jesus Christ is so much greater so much greater than you or I can even imagine. Without Christ, just think about it, without Jesus Christ, nothing would exist. There would be no world. There would be no you. There would be no sermon here today. Without Christ, we would have no salvation. Again, you and I would not be sitting here listening to God's word joyfully if Jesus Christ did not come to save us. And without Jesus Christ, we would have no hope of heaven. There would be no new creation waiting for us apart from or outside of Christ. These truths are meant to drive us to our knees as we see just how amazing Jesus Christ really is. But this truth also is is designed to show us that we need to rely on Christ and nothing else. Jesus, the Son of God, is utterly, completely sufficient for us. He is the one who is creating us, sustaining us, and saving us. And because that is so, because of who He is, then He is the one and the only one that we need. Nothing, and no one else will ever, ever be able to satisfy you. Stop relying on yourself. We do it all the time. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on what you know. Stop relying on what you can do. Stop relying on other things that God has given us. Jobs, money, relationship, our lifestyle. So many other things that we rely on instead of the all-sufficient Son of God, Jesus Christ. These words here are meant to encourage the Colossians and encourage us to rely on Christ, to find comfort in Him, 
Because nothing is outside of his control and he unfailingly gives us what we need. So we close then. Just see the greatness. See the greatness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has made us and he's sustaining us. He saved us. He's remade us and he's bringing us into his presence. He is so much better, so much more beautiful, so much greater, so much more that we need than we may ever even see or imagine. But that's the truth of what God has done for us in His Son. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, this passage is is deep. It is infinitely deep as we look at our Savior, our Creator, our Sustainer, our God, Jesus Christ. Thank you for showing us these things to us. Thank you for showing us just how great, how awesome he really is and how much we need him. Lord, we pray that these truths would actually change how we live this, this life in the week to come, that we would depend on Jesus Christ and him alone, that we would praise him for who he is and what he's done, and Lord, that we would also share who the Son of God really is with those around us. Lord, we thank you that we can even see him for who he is because of what you've done and that we can worship him and that we even can share him with those around us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to be at work in us to increase our understanding, our love, and our obedience. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.